Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Generation Y ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, and social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store, for accepting payments to manage inventory. It has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one true source. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash geny, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash geny to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash geny. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, Audible. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. You got bestsellers, new releases, and mysteries and thrillers. I'm currently listening to A Rip in Heaven by Janine Cummings. It's a true story that happened in April 1991 about some teenagers, family members that were violently attacked. Two would perish, and the one surviving one would end up being accused of the crime. But the reality of what happened is much worse. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash GWP or text GWP to 500-500. That's audible.com slash GWP or text GWP to 500-500. Tonight, Aaron. Doing good, Justin. How are you feeling? I'm doing wonderful. So we got some shout outs tonight. We'd like to say a special thank you to Eric Van Dyke for all of his assistance and thank you to Jade Lombard. Both of them are from South Africa. Yay. Again, if you're planning to go to the Michigan meetup and you haven't contacted us via Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, please contact us. Let us know if you'll be there for sure. That will really help us narrow down how many people are coming. Because we need to find a big enough venue, depending on the numbers. Also, if you're on Patreon and if you're at the $5 level or above, we've been including special outtakes and things like that. If you really like them, let us know. Yeah, because we're just throwing stuff up there just to put some funny stuff up there and for you guys to hear more of us. A lot of it's not even true crime related. It's just the weird banter that Aaron and I will have sometimes. Well, I think it's important though, because sometimes people tell us like on the shoemaker episode, people are telling us that was really twisted. That was dark. Well, if you want to relieve that pressure, then just go out to Patreon and listen to our outtakes. So what are we talking about tonight, Aaron? Tonight we're talking about Dee Dee and Gypsy Blanchard. If you don't know this story, oh my goodness, you're in for a treat. Also, you need to get in the know. <laughs> and if you are in the know, chances are you probably watched a documentary, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. And I 
interviewed the director of the documentary, Erin Lee Carr. She was a pleasure to speak to. So stay tuned after the episode to hear that interview with her. It's not too long, and she's an awesome person. So check it out. So this case, it's the story of Claudinia Blanchard. But Claudinia goes by Dee Dee, and her daughter is Gypsy. Gypsy Rose. Gypsy's whole entire life has been controlled by her mother. Later in her teen years, she tries to make a break from her mother, and she goes to some extremes to do it. I don't want to give too much away during the summary, but being that we're covering it, you know something terrible happens. We'll go from there. This happens in Springfield, Missouri in June of 2015. So Aaron, Gypsy, when was she born? Gypsy Rose Blanchard was probably born on July 27th of 1991. Why do you say probably? Well, in all of the documents, anything that required a birth date for Gypsy, when all of these things are looked through, it appears that Dee Dee had used three different birth dates. And they are July 27th, 1991, July 27th, 1995, and July 28th, 1992. And the explanation for this will become apparent as we talk about this case. At three months old, Dee Dee says Gypsy's suffering from sleep apnea, a disorder that's kind of hard to diagnose or check. But she knows her daughter has this, and she gets a breathing machine put on her infant daughter at three months old. A CPAP machine. During the next few years, Dee Dee will claim her daughter has asthma, hearing and vision impairment, retardation, a chromosome disorder, MS, leukemia, epilepsy, and cerebral palsy. What did I miss there, Aaron? Uh, she's wheelchair bound. She's fed through a tube. From the hearing impairment, she will have tympanoplasty, which is uh, eardrum surgery to repair the eardrums for her hearing impairment. For her vision impairment, she will be given glasses, contacts, and even some mild eye surgeries. For her MS, she's told she can't walk. She has to be in a wheelchair leukemia and she's has her head shaved by her mother because she's told she's going to lose all of her hair anyways epilepsy she gets seizure medicine she actually has four shelves of prescriptions that she ends up having to take on a daily basis uh, she had excessive drooling she had her salivary glands removed she had issues with her teeth so she was given crowns and implants, bridges. Eventually, she'll be told that she has gastrointestinal issues, acid reflux, and it's so bad that she'll have a feeding tube inserted into her. Anyone that's had one of these 
for an extended period of time knows that they have to be replaced about every six months. You don't just get one and it's there and it's good. You have to go back to the hospital every six months and have it pulled out and a new one inserted. And they don't put you under for this. You are fully awake. Because Gypsy has so many medical issues, her mother Dee Dee is eligible for grants, other federal aid. She also gets donations from hundreds of thousands of supporters, uh, medical airlifted to hospitals for treatment because they live out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, they would fly her from Springfield to Kansas City, correct? Yeah. A lot of the specialists that Gypsy had to see were in Kansas City because it's a big city. I know people think that it's a flyover state and there's nothing here in Kansas City, but we live here. It's a big city. (laughs) Not to jump ahead, but just to give you an idea, from 2005 to 2014, she had over 100 visits to the hospital and hundreds more to specialists and doctors for daily ailments. And because of this, she would get featured on the news, correct? Yeah. The issues that Gypsy had were extensive, to say the least. And because of this, Dee Dee would get time on news stations. She would post on social media. She would be involved with all kinds of organizations to raise funds, medical funds, for Gypsy. And the wonderful, generous hearts of people came out, and they were donated hundreds of thousands of dollars for this sick child. And Didi was given a, a home to live in. All the medical expenses were pretty much covered. Uh, Make-A-Wish foundations, other things would grant them trips. They went to Disney World. There was a lot of of hope and giving out there. Yeah, people really felt for this family, and their hearts went out to them. Their wallets went out to them. Dee Dee even ran a blog and would promote the needs of her daughter on there. On June 14th, some people start to notice some very strange some very alarming posts on Dee Dee and Gypsy's Facebook page. They share a Facebook account. And we're going to read these Facebook posts off just so you know what they are. Uh, but uh, heads up, there's some language in here. So you know, warning. The first post that went up simply read, that bitch is dead. And then people started commenting on that post, asking if everything's okay. And there was a reply. And the reply from the account was, I fucking slashed that fat pig and raped her sweet, innocent daughter. Her scream was so fucking loud. LOL. And people are wondering if the Facebook account has been hacked. People are wondering if this is Dee Dee or Gypsy that's posting it, but they're pretty sure that it's not. And they will call the police to do a welfare check on the home. And if you don't know what a welfare check is, is uh, if you haven't heard from a loved one, if you think something's awry, you can call the police and say, I want to do a welfare check. And the police will go knock on the door, look in the windows and see if there's any issue going on. 
one of the neighbors had already gone into the house and came back out and told police that no one was home. Police secured a search warrant and entered the home, and they found the body of Dee Dee in her bedroom. She was face down on her bed, and she had a large slash across the back of her neck and multiple stab wounds in her back. So the assailant had held her down and attacked her from behind while she lay in bed. Then their concern, of course, is the daughter of Dee Dee, who is Gypsy, but Gypsy is wheelchair-bound. So where could she have gotten off to? Maybe she's been kidnapped. Exactly. So they start a, a hunt for her, a search for her. They shut down the neighborhoods. They, they start pulling phone records, going through Facebook accounts. It starts to dawn on them that Gypsy might have had something to do with her mother's murder. Two days later, they find Gypsy Rose and her boyfriend, Nicholas Godijohn, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, living at his mother's house. And they seem to be okay. No problems. They take Gypsy into custody as they're questioning her. And if you've seen the documentary, you've seen her reaction. They inform her that her mother's been murdered and is dead. And Gypsy starts crying, becoming unresponsive. And they're asking her, do you know anything about this? Do you have anything to do with your mother's death? And she denies everything. She says, no, I don't know anything about this. Um, Also, did I mention that Gypsy walks into the station? (laughs) No wheelchair required. So that's an eye-opener for a lot of people is how is this young woman able to get out of her wheelchair and walk casually into a police department? That should not happen. There's no miracles. This, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is out of the ordinary. And as they question Nick, Nicholas, pretty much comes clean and doesn't hold back, tells him exactly what they did and how it went down. Yeah, he says that he checked with Gypsy. Are you sure you want me to do this? Are you sure you want me to kill your mother? And Gypsy confirmed that she did want him to do that, and she handed him a knife, and he went into Dee Dee's bedroom, got on top of her as she was face down, and started attacking her with the knife. He even told the police that he considered raping her. But he didn't go through with that. Yeah, which he didn't make the Facebook comment a little more understandable. If he was talking about doing it, then whoever posted it would assume that it happened. But we find out that Gypsy's the one that was making the Facebook posts. People that are in the know, this isn't a big reveal for you. People that aren't in the know, you're probably wondering what's going on about now. We're going to go into a background on Gypsy's life, her childhood here, that is probably the most twisted, scary thing I've ever heard in my life. So as we said, from three months old, Gypsy's had all of these quote-unquote medical issues. But in reality, she has been a very healthy and capable young girl 
her mother has feigned all these issues with her to get attention, to get support, even drove away the father, right? Rod Blanchard married Dee Dee because she was pregnant, probably. And he had married her young. She was a good six years older or so than he was at the time. And he was just 18. He just didn't want to be married to her anymore. Some people can marry young and they're happy. And some people marry young and then they realize, wait a minute, I didn't really know this person. They're not the kind of person I wanted to marry. Probably a a few red flags that he saw, but he had this child with her. So he thought, I'll do the right thing but then realized pretty quickly that he didn't want to be in this marriage and wanted to be part of his daughter's life. But Dee Dee was telling him that she had all these issues and she was just constantly in and out of hospitals. So he didn't really get to see his daughter grow up because he wasn't in control of her life the way Dee Dee was. And according to Rod, the point where this took a real turn where he was really separated from his child was when Dee Dee told him that Gypsy had a chromosomal defect. And she probably wouldn't live past 17 or 18 years old. Dee Dee was a former nurse's aide, and she's telling her ex-husband that she knows how to take care of their daughter, and she will do that. Rod felt like he wasn't qualified, but he did support her. How did he support her, Justin? He would send them money every month. He would send up to $1,000, $1,200 every month to help support his daughter. If they had unexpected medical bills, he would send more money. He just assumed that Dee Dee knew best because she was a nurse. So when she met Rod, they were living in Louisiana. But after Hurricane Katrina, Dee Dee and Gypsy moved to Springfield, Missouri, and Rod stayed in Louisiana. With that move, Dee Dee claims that they lost everything, including all of Gypsy's medical records. So when she speaks to medical personnel in Springfield or Kansas City, they have nothing to go on, no background for Gypsy to compare or check with because everything was lost in in Louisiana. So they have to take Dee Dee's word for all of her symptoms, all of her ailments. And because she's in the medical practice, she knows what to say. She knows what disorders or diseases are not quite testable, I guess you could say. She's pulling things out that are a little bit more abstract or harder to diagnose. She's telling the doctors, speaking for Gypsy. She's not allowing Gypsy to speak or interact with the doctors as much as possible. She tells her daughter, don't move your legs. She tells her daughter, don't say anything. She will even cover her daughter's ears when she's speaking to doctors, so Gypsy can't hear all the things that her mother's saying. Dee Dee will explain to the doctors that she can't hear this. It's too much for her to endure. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, Simply Safe. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the day goes longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe 
It's the award-winning home security system I use and recommend. Both experts and customers love Simply Safe for its comprehensive protection. It was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. Its advanced technology protects every home, window, and door, while cameras keep watch for suspicious activities 24-7. There's no long-term contract. You'll get the emergency response you need at half the cost of traditional home security at less than a dollar a day. You install the system your way. It's easy to do it yourself. I did mine. It was about 20, 25 minutes from start to finish. But if you're not comfortable with that, you can have the professionals do it. Protect your home today. Generation Y listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system. When you sign up for fast protect monitoring, just visit simplysafe.com slash GenY. That's simplysafe.com slash GenY. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, DoorDash. If you're looking to get more from delivery, you can get it with Dash Pass by DoorDash. Plus, you can get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for Dash Pass. Dash Pass is only $9.99 a month. You get special access to exclusive promotions, member-only menu items, and with Dash Pass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders. I use it all the time. Sometimes I just can't leave the house. I have too much going on. I got to edit and uh, I'll get my food delivered today. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for Dash Pass. Use code GENY24. That code again, GENY24. Subject to change, terms apply. So Rod is supporting his ex-wife and his daughter as best as he can. And as far as he knows, Gypsy has a host of health issues. He stays in contact with both his ex-wife and his daughter by phone. He'll call and Dee Dee will say, hey, I know it's her birthday, but don't mention the number because she thinks she's younger than she really is. For instance, on her 18th birthday, she's telling him, don't say 18 because she's 15. Three years difference. Yeah. But as far as he knows... His ex-wife is doing the best she can for their daughter, and she's also very polite with him on the phone. But this is not the case when she deals with conversations about him. If she has conversations with her daughter, if she has conversations with anyone else, people will ask her, where's her father? What's he doing? And she'll say, he's an abusive man. We had to get him out of her life. Especially with medical personnel, because... When you're having to have surgery on your child, they want to get the parent's consent. And she will tell the doctors and nurses, I have no interaction with the father or he's an abusive person, so therefore we can't get his consent. That's how she gets around that. By age 10, gypsies, she will be confined to this wheelchair for over 10 years, closer to 12 or 13 years. Some of the doctors will notice that most most people who suffer from muscular dystrophy or are bound to a wheelchair, said to be paralyzed from the waist down, they will have atrophy. They're, they will have zero muscle mass in their legs. And they notice that she has fairly normal muscle mass in her legs. Now, she appears to be out of shape. She needs to get more exercise, but they take notice. And especially one doctor, a neurologist, 
named Dr. Bernardo Flasherstein. He will get Gypsy in his office and, and get to diagnose her. His notes are 14-year-old who recently transferred care. All medical records were lost due to Hurricane Katrina or all the moves they went through. A day after her visit, Dee Dee reports that Gypsy has numbness and brings her back for an EMG test. Previous neurologist clearly reports that she does not have muscular dystrophy. So he knows that there's something up. He knows that this is more than likely Munchausen by proxy. And he cites it in his notes. He's very detailed about some of these things, but he doesn't report it. And his logic here is, if a child's been neglected or abused, it's obvious. You know, they're malnutrition. They have uh, marks from beatings, what have you. And he can report that and get the ball moving on family services coming in and removing the child from the home. But when a parent is over-treating a child, there's a void in our legal system and medical system to deal with the situation. And he knows that if he reports this, it will be rejected outright. So he leaves it be, and he just continues putting it in his notes. But as soon as Dee Dee gets access to all of her medical records, they drop him as their neurologist, like she does every single time one doctor or nurse starts to question, they go to a different one. With Gypsy becoming 18, you would think she would have some say-so, but she doesn't. And that's because Dee Dee has made sure to name herself as her caretaker, her caregiver, her guardian. She's in charge of her medical records. Gypsy will later claim that she knows she can walk, but... She assumes that all the other medical ailments she has are true. Here's the screwed up part. When you're taking all these medications, prescriptions and stuff, they all have side effects. And a lot of the symptoms that she suffered from, whether it be insomnia or unable to go to the bathroom, whatever, these are side effects from other medicines. So she truly is suffering all of these symptoms because she's on so many pills that her mother is giving her. That really screws me up because I get the con. I get that you're faking a, a sick child to get attention, to get money, to, to get these things. But to actually go through with giving her the medications, to actually go through with having surgeries and getting these things, these awful things done that no child should ever have to go through. Like, why take it to that level when the con worked? You got the money, you got all these things, but this is the the extent of what we call Munchausen by proxy. So they go through with it. This isn't just, oh, I have a sick child, give me sympathy. It's a full-on action. And this child is being put through hell 
And she assumes that all of this is real because her mother's been telling her this since her first memory. That's all she knows. Dee Dee has kept Gypsy in a childlike state for a long, long time. And anybody who looks at her, who hears her talk, says to themselves, this is a child. When you see her interact with other children, she it, it sounds like she's never gone through puberty. She looks much younger than she truly is. Her, her voice is just so squeaky and childlike. You, you feel bad for her, and you truly don't know how old she is. Gypsy has access to computers and tablets, so she's on social media. She creates secret accounts that are not jointly managed between her and her mother. And she starts reaching out to other people, and she finds a boy who she wants to run away with. She will take off with this boy within hours. Her mother is freaking out. My child ran away, calling the police. If you think about it, of course she would, because her daughter's out walking around. So that's kind of a problem for her, because if people find out, they'll realize that the gig is up. They'll, they'll realize that this whole thing is a sham. When her mother finally gets Gypsy home, she pulls out a hammer, smashes Gypsy's phone, smashes her computer, and tells Gypsy, if you ever do that again, I'll break your fucking hands. She will also handcuff Gypsy, clip a dog leash to the handcuffs, and then clip that to the bed, which now Gypsy can't leave She can't go anywhere. She can't escape. She will go on to physically abuse Gypsy. She will smack her. She will use coat hangers, like wire hangers, to hit her with and control her. So between the physical, emotional abuse and just the all-around overbearing lifestyle that Dee Dee has, Gypsy's not really fighting back anymore. She feels broken and... Desperate. And let's not forget, she needs her mother because she's so sick. She needs that constant care, that round-the-clock care. Yeah. But Gypsy does not give up on love. She joins a Christian single dating site, and she will meet Nicholas, or Nick. He is a little older, but this guy's not quite stable himself. There's... uh, An incident where he is in a McDonald's for over 10 hours watching pornography and masturbating before he's ejected from the the place. I don't know how you get away with that for 10 hours, but I don't eat at McDonald's either. So maybe that's a normal thing. Um, He will introduce Gypsy to BDSM or bondage where, where he explains to her that she as a woman is the submissive. He as the man is the dominant. And he will explain to Gypsy the things that he wants to do, which mainly entail tying her up, giving her light beatings, biting her, things to that effect. And she has nicknames that she goes by, 
such as Little Kitty or Candy. To her, these are, are fun nicknames, but Nicholas says that he has multiple personalities. So Gypsy created her own personalities to match up with his. It's not enough, really, to have this relationship on the internet. So the two of them meet at a movie theater to see the movie Cinderella. At the movie theater, Nicholas will claim that Gypsy will take him into the boy's bathroom and have sex with him. And then afterwards, they'll go into the theater and watch Cinderella, the live action version. This is all a ploy to get Dee Dee to meet this guy, kind of put that out in the open that she likes him. But it doesn't work out because Dee Dee thinks that he's a creep. She thinks that it's weird that this guy would go to the movie theater by himself and watch a children's movie, which I totally agree with her at that point. It's like, yeah, why would this guy go see Cinderella and randomly run into Gypsy? So this whole ploy just does not work out at all and probably makes him look worse than, you know, than she wanted him to. Gypsy tried running off with some other guy before. This time she tried to do it the right way, which was find a way to introduce him to her mother. That didn't work either. There's also a time where neighbors or friends had actually reported abuse going on at the home. And when the police showed up to do pretty much a welfare check on Gypsy to make sure that she's not being abused by her mother, her mother took over, showed them all the medical documentation, all the issues her daughter has, shed a few tears and said that she's doing the best as a mom. And these police officers would deem everything looks great. They're not medical professionals, so what do they know? And they will leave the home. But Gypsy will see that even when the police are called, they're not going to do anything for her. So Gypsy was able to gather up enough funds to buy him a a Greyhound bus ticket to come down to Springfield. Uh, In the text messages they they have, she says that I am 100% in. You need to do this. This is going down tonight. I will leave the, the door open for you. She says that she'll leave gloves outside for him and that she'll give him the knife and duct tape once he's inside and to be careful of the screen door as it squeaks. So only open it enough to let himself in. It's clearly premeditated. There are text messages, Facebook messages, multiple electronic conversations about it. Also, at the house when it happened, she let Nicholas into the home. She gave him the murder weapon, which was a knife, and she hid in the bathroom until her mother was dead. They will flee to Wisconsin with thousands of dollars they steal from Dee Dee's safe. This is, again, all the money that they've been collecting from donations and whatnot. They will end up mailing the murder weapon back to Wisconsin also. Just every single step they took, this was very planned out. There's no doubt to anyone that this was premeditated. When Nicholas talks about wanting to rape her mother, Gypsy will say, 
please don't do that. You can rape me instead. We stated in our summary that Dee Dee Blanchard was murdered by Nicholas Godijohn because he was asked to do so by Gypsy. And of course, we also stated that two days after the alarming Facebook posts that they were able to apprehend both Nicholas Godijohn and Gypsy Blanchard and bring them back to Missouri. I thought it was kind of stupid of her to make these Facebook posts, but apparently her logic was she didn't want her dead mother to sit and rot in the house. She wanted somebody to find her. That was the point of the Facebook posts. They will be indicted. And what does Gypsy do? Well, they the prosecutor is looking at this as clearly a first-degree murder trial which in Missouri comes with capital punishment. They can put you to death for this. The prosecutor will ask the defense for mitigating factors like they do, and they are provided with hundreds, if not thousands of pages of documentation of the abuse that Gypsy endured at the hands of her mother or the medical professionals that she manipulated into treating Gypsy. And the prosecutor will have to make a decision on whether or not to charge her with first-degree murder or or what. It's not an easy decision for him, but he decides to offer her a plea deal of second-degree murder with a 10-year sentence. Gypsy will accept this as to not go to trial. She knows that she's going to get 10 years, possibly less, on good behavior I think that she's been controlled all of her life. I don't know if she would know what to do with herself if she was free. Like I know it's 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 a hard ten years to you know to go to to prison, but I don't think that going to prison and sleeping in a cell could be any worse than being handcuffed and dog leashed to a bed with feeding tubes inserted in you. It actually sounds more appealing in a weird, sick way. As of this recording, Nicholas has asked for trial by a judge, not trial by jury, is bringing up that Gypsy asked him to do this. So he was doing it because of her. And that's kind of his defense, but he still very much loves Gypsy and Gypsy loves him. He also says that he felt like he was helping her out because she was being abused. He said, I will protect you from anything. And Gypsy said, even my own mother? He said, yeah. What other options does Gypsy have? The the cops have been called. Doctors have reported it in their notes. She's not getting anywhere. Her mother even drew up documents with a lawyer showing how Gypsy is incompetent. And even if she is over the age of 18, her mother will continue being her guardian. Go to John's defense attorney is trying his best to help his client out with mitigating factors. They brought in a psychologist, Kent Franks, who examined Go to John on a couple of occasions and made some notes. He says that Nicholas Go to John is on the autism spectrum. He has an IQ of 82, and he functions at a 10- or 11-year-old's level. 
and was in special education classes. They're trying to show that he doesn't quite have the capacity to understand what was happening and how he ended up murdering a person, basically. He's not mature enough. We've already mentioned some of his prior behaviors. He's, he's got issues. With Gypsy getting 10 years, it'll be interesting to see how much he gets because it's a slightly different argument. It was her abuser who was murdered, and he's a stranger to the situation. So huh. we'll have to keep an eye on that. The overriding question I had in this entire case was that Munchausen by proxy syndrome kept getting brought up for good reason. It's a mental illness, right? So does Dee Dee Blanchard have her own mitigating circumstances for why she did what she did? Could she have possibly been striking back at a lost love? Her husband, her ex-husband, Rod Blanchard. There's a doctor out there who co-wrote a book with another doctor. Their names are Carol Jenny and Thomas Raisler. Their book is Medical Child Abuse. And Jenny coined this term because she's had enough of Munchausen by proxy syndrome. She thinks that it doesn't drive home the point. Just as you have people saying that sexual assault is not rape, it needs to say rape, not sexual assault, this is very similar. She wants people to understand who they're dealing with. They're dealing with criminals who are abusing children. They've written this book so that there's a higher level of understanding as well as a higher level of recognition of this so that something can be done to help these kids. A case that should be noted is in Texas, there's a district attorney by the name of Mike Trent who wrote an article about how difficult it is for the justice system to deal with medical child abuse cases. And in 2008, he prosecuted a woman for this. And she had three children, two sons and a daughter, who all wore diapers. Two of them were confined to wheelchairs, had gastronomy tubes so that liquid could be pumped right into their stomachs. All three were on a, uh, an array of prescription drugs. They had all kinds of disorders and medical issues like seizures, anxiety, Tourette syndrome, mitochondrial disorder, hypothyroidism. All these things that are hard to test. Exactly. And two of her friends who don't even know each other contacted Child Protective Services. Well, when they got there, she did the same thing that Dee Dee did. She wept and she told them, hey, I am struggling as a mom here. I'm doing the best I can to keep these kids alive because they are my world. And they left her alone. And it took a prosecuting attorney and it took other people who came together to finally tackle this case. Those kids were in trouble. They got a conviction because the prosecuting attorney did his due diligence and he got all the medical records. He got them subpoenaed. He got uh, witness statements and he put together charts to show over the years all of the abuse, the unnecessary surgeries, and how this was assault, basically. And he said, it's almost like the scalpel was the weapon and that Lori was directing the knife by deception. She was making this happen, the harm come to these kids. And they got a conviction. It was just for 15 years. And it probably should have been a lot more than that. But 
he was talking about how it's amazing what it takes to get here because you can't point at somebody who's working their butt off to take care of their kids and say, you're a child abuser. It just doesn't make sense. But once you really dig into it and see what's happening here, it does start to make sense. But many doctors are afraid to really take action because if they're somehow wrong, then they're impeding a mother who's trying to help their children. That child may suffer because they didn't get that surgery. And now people will avoid them or they will put their own reputation in danger because they've falsely accused a mother of child abuse. One expert who testified um, against Lori said that the only way that her daughter had cyanotic episodes where she was turning purple was because her mother had been smothering her as early as a month and a half old. So Munchausen by proxy syndrome or medical child abuse? I would argue medical child abuse and it is abuse. When people question, you know, what should we be doing with Gypsy? They gave her 10 years. I know there are people out there that would have said, nope, don't give her any time. This system is not really set up to deal with this problem properly yet. I hope in the future it is set up to deal with these kinds of issues because this whole trying to figure out how much time Gypsy should get, it just shows our system is not ready yet. But hopefully over time we will get there and in the future kids like Gypsy won't have to resort to murder to feel like they can be safe again. You don't have to have a locked door to be held captive. Stockholm syndrome or hostage syndrome takes effect. Gypsy doesn't know any anything else. And when we look at the behavior of Dee Dee's mother, who was a con artist, and then we look at Dee Dee before she married Rod, she would write bad checks, she would steal the identities of her family members, run up huge bills all over town. She was actually arrested for that. Her past is is manipulation and lying. And I've seen some comments out there that say, well, Gypsy knew exactly what she was doing. She's a liar and she's been taught by the best. But that's all she knows is, is her mother and her treatment by her mother. A good example of whether Gypsy knows what she's doing, whether she's deceiving or whether she's abused, is to listen to family members. There were family members that saw Gypsy get out of the wheelchair, jump on trampolines, and play with the other children until her mother found out, and her mother put a stop to it. That to me isn't, oh, Gypsy's playing along because she loves all this. No, her mother is the boss, and her mother is telling her to knock it off, and she'll have to. And all of these family members, when they found out that Dee Dee had been murdered... Half of them thought it was a new con. And they said, no, she's not dead. She's just trying to collect more money. The other half said, good riddance. She deserved what she got. These are her own flesh and blood saying this. Now I look at Gypsy and I think what she did is, yeah, this will get me in trouble again, cold-blooded murder. She got Nicholas to stab her mother to death. She absolutely planned this. She absolutely had a hand in this. You could say she manipulated Nicholas to do this. I say that she was trying to defend herself and Nicholas was her knife. 
this was her way of escaping. Now, what she did was first-degree murder. If you're not going to call it self-defense, then you have to call it first-degree murder. I have a problem with the prosecution offering her this plea deal. I think he should have gone for the death penalty because I know there isn't a single jury that would have convicted her and put her to death. They would have let her walk. Now, I don't know if that would have been the best thing for her because she's been living literally in confinement her entire life. So walking free, I don't know if she would have been able to adapt to society any better than, say, a prisoner who's getting paroled from prison. One of the terms that comes up when they're trying to diagnose or to figure out whether medical child abuse is happening is they do something known as therapeutic separation. In Gypsy's case, she was separated from her mother, not only by the murder, but then she was placed into the prison system. And she's off all of her medications, and she's eating terrible prison food, and yet she's gained weight, and she has looked a little older now, I think. So she's normalizing. When you see her from her childhood, even up until the murder, and then you see her now in prison, she's got a glow to her. She's not pale and pasty and, and, and just decrepit looking. She looked horrible. And I'm not trying to say that to be mean. She looked physically ill. She looked terminally ill. And now you see her. Her hair has grown out. Her skin colors come back. She looks good. She actually is able to engage people, speak normally. <laughs> it's an improvement. And that's the disgusting part is being in prison is an improvement of her life. How is that possible? I know that many of you have watched Mommy, Dead and Dearest, and we were contacted on behalf of the director. Aaron Lee Carr wanted to come on the show, and we don't do as many interviews these days, but Justin, I mean, a great documentary, right? Uh, yeah, and Aaron Lee is going to be the next big hit in, in documentary filmmaking. I guarantee it. And this one, I think, is going to propel her into the, the stars. Justin had a chance to talk with her, and he did. And so we will play that interview now. Hopefully you enjoyed our discussion. And if you have any thoughts on this case, feel free to post to our Facebook or in our group or write us an email. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening. Hello. Hey, Aaron. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing wonderful. I did watch the documentary and... What'd you think? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd heard the story before. I was familiar, familiar with it, but there was a lot of details that I was not aware of that I learned while watching. So you want to uh, you want to introduce yourself and what the documentary and everything real quick? Yeah, of course. Uh, so my name is Aaron Lee Carr. I'm a director and a filmmaker, and I most recently made the very strange uh, but hopefully watchable film "Mommy Dead and Dearest," which is set to air on HBO hmm. Monday, May fifteenth. Anyone that doesn't know, this is the story of Gypsy and Dee Dee. Uh, so anyone that's in the know, they'll know exactly what we're talking about. Right. <laughs> um, this is a huge story in the true crime genre. Making her daughter do all these medical procedures and faking all these illnesses for support, financially, emotional. Do you right. have a better description or explanation than mine? 
No, I mean, it's it's it is just a tragic case of a, you know, a mother daughter relationship that turned into, you know, a sociopathic stranglehold. I mean, I, I just never heard of anything like this. I mean, you know, you think of, you know, feigning an illness for your child, but like she actually gave her, you know, Dee Dee gave Gypsy medication that made her teeth fall out. We're not talking about just keeping somebody in a wheelchair when they're at public events. This ran so deep and so long, the con that we're talking about. It's just, it's completely shocking. I mean, at one point she had a feeding tube inserted Yep. I mean, her whole life she's had a feeding tube. Oh. Um, Justin, it's just, you know, I, I mean, that's what she has known. Uh, the day before, I think the day before Dee Dee was murdered, they changed the feeding tube. And I think Gypsy had this real sort of thought process, like, this is the last time I'm going to have to do this. I mean, it's torture. I mean, we, we just got to call it what it is. It's It's abuse and it's torture. I was shocked that most of the medical field wasn't catching on. Right. But there was the one doctor who actually identified it. But right. nobody really listened um until later. <laughs> I I I just I'm that that's what really blows my mind is how the mother was able to get everyone to believe that her daughter was having these issues and get them to go to these extents. Totally. From the, from the reporting that we did in sort of making the film, uh, Dee Dee was a master manipulator. And it's, you know, her sort of con ran the gambit between family members, neighbors, celebrities, um, to doctors. And I, I think that the medical community, especially the ones that treated uh, Gypsy, they will have to answer to some of these. But, you know, I think that what you see in our film is that Doctors were treating the symptoms that Gypsy had because of the medication that uh, Dee Dee was giving her. I mm-hmm. mean, like the doctors can treat what is there. So it's a really it's a really difficult process to find or sort of assign blame to anyone. Is it Gypsy's fault? Is it Dee Dee's fault? Is it the doctor's fault? Is it, you know, the educators, Dyfus? I mean, it, it, this, this list can go on and on and on. When she was dating her, her boyfriend and... Her, her mother wouldn't even allow her to date or talk to anybody. So she's having to hide this relationship for the most part for, a, a, you know, at least the beginning and a, a large portion of it. But this boyfriend didn't seem to be the best guy either. <laughs> he might have been contributing to a lot of the abuse, whether it be mentally or, or emotional abuse, too. Totally. I think that you're right. Um, I think that it's very common, unfortunately, for people who have lived in abusive relationships as they've grown up to seek out another partner that will or will not sort of, you know, participate in the same behaviors. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, as we sit here, that's what happened. She, she went online, she went on a Christian dating for free site, and she found this guy named Nicholas Godijan. And um, I have a lot of thoughts on Nicholas Godijan. Um, you know, the first amongst them is that he is a severely mentally ill person. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody who uh, hears about this horrendous abuse story, you know, if you were hearing it from Gypsy firsthand, you would not agree to help murder her mother. That's no rational person would have that feeling. So, yes, he was abusive. Yes, he was a, um, a not not a good boyfriend, a gypsy, but he was also, you know, very mentally ill. Just to build on that, I mean, there's the whole situation where he was, what, at a McDonald's for 10 hours? 
Oh my God. <laughs> Before they ejected him from the property because he was watching porno on their free Wi-Fi. Yeah, we were we were at South by and then we were able to take the film as well to hot docs and there just was this giant guffaw of laughter after you know, after the line of for nine hours. And yeah. it's just like, you know, we included it for a reason. There needs to be some like you need to be a little bit of humor in this. <laughs> and I, I hope you don't mind me revealing that no, little detail. <laughs> I think I mean I, I you know, I'm hopeful that your audience watches it, but there there's just so much more. We could talk about four percent of sort of what happened here. Yeah. Like it's really about like the, it just unravels and unravels and unravels. Mm-hmm. with with him, just who does that? first off and then with 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 the with her mentality i mean she's i guess at the time of the murder she's into her 20s now but when you look at her when you listen to her i i see a 12 to a 15 year old you know i don't feel that way um i when i sat down with her and in subsequent conversations i find her to be an incredibly articulate pretty self-aware you can see in her interview with us that she's kind of self-referential. She can talk about it and then she's like, you know, that didn't turn out very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think adults talk like that. She does not have life experience that you and I have. Yeah. But man, she is smart. I just want to get that across whenever I'm doing press about her. And, you know, unfortunately, she's not here to talk with us. She's in prison. She's smart. And for a long, a huge part of her life, she was said, she was told that she was mentally incompetent. She's not. She's really smart and she's going to do she's going to do good things. Well, I guess the only reason why I point that out is is I wasn't trying to say she was dumb or not mentally competent, but I just think she's she seems a lot younger than yeah, her age because she yeah. was treated like that forever. Yeah. And and I, I want to sympathize with her and I really have issue with even though what they did was horrible. I yeah. personally don't want to hold her that accountable for it because I don't think that she, you know, she's in this situation. She's literally locked to her mother who would find her mentally incompetent and keep custody of her. I guess you don't have to have a locked door to keep somebody captive. And this was her way of removing herself from the situation, but I don't exactly blame her for what she did. Does that make sense? Totally. It's just so hard to sort of wrap our heads around it. And so like, I find these conversations to be really exciting because I kind of keep thinking about it and keep having sort of thoughts about it. And it just sort of changes. She ends up taking a kind of a plea deal, right? She, she, a lesser charge for a minimum sentence. You know, I want people like basically it's kind of like what happened to her yeah. um, as she goes through this sort of this sort of uh, legal process. Mm-hmm. And so I think that viewers might be interested because the, the yeah. number of time is a little bit unusual that she gets. Yeah. Yeah. I personally sympathize with her greatly. And right. and that's what this documentary, I think, really portrays is as you get through it, you start to realize this this poor girl and you stop you stop thinking this this murderer and that's how i i interpret it but i'm sure that there's some people that will have zero sympathy for her no matter what because of her actions (laughs) what was the most striking thing to you when you spoke to her 
uh, I guess, what was your thoughts going into it and how did you feel after you spoke to her? Oh, wow. Um, when I spoke to Gypsy, it was a long time in the making. It was about uh, a year of my time sort of working on this story, um, talking to her family, talking to neighbors. But, you know, of course, I had, I had met her in person uh, through, you know, bulletproof glass. I had talked with her so many times on the phone, but here she was and I was able to shake her hand. She, she seemed so small and so nervous and um, as a filmmaker, this is the moment to talk about the really scary thing that happened in that house that night. And I could not shy away from doing that, but it, it was, you know, it's a very upsetting conversation to have. And I was completely, uh, and totally impressed by her level of honesty. Uh, she really was able to talk about it and a lot of people would not be able to. What were the reactions of the other friends and family when you spoke to them. I mean, obviously the cat was out of, out of the bag by the time you got around to them, but just the complete, I guess, surprise to them. Um, there was, people were shocked, disillusioned, upset, you know, interested, fascinated. I think a lot of people were upset that they had sort of bought into the ruse for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that nobody was sort of more heartbroken that she could actually walk than her dad. Um, you know, he lost a very significant amount of time with her. And he realized that she lost a very significant amount of time, you know, just being having ownership over her body. So, you know, as much as it sort of was shocking for people, I think he was really heartbroken. I, I can't even imagine being in his shoes with that. This is his entire life with his daughter it feels like it's been taken away from him. Totally. This didn't just start with her, did it? It was, it seemed to be kind of a generational thing, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's the evidence that I found, but it was, you know, these are allegations. This is through secondhand. I was not able to corroborate, you know, using police records. There was no, there was no records that, you know, DB had tried to kill her mom, but you know, given what I know about the case, it does not seem like that's an impossibility. Yeah, it didn't seem far-fetched to me at all. I was willing to almost accept it at face value just because of the the story and how everything played out. Um, so I'm just going off memory here. Yeah, of course. And I could tell and I love it. Like that's <laughs> basically I always bring questions and then I, I find it's a really good interview if I'm just in the thick of it. Yeah. And it's, I have seven pages in my hand, but I'm just like, you know, like I, I got through most of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm just I, I just the, my my visceral reaction of watching that documentary. Uh, I mean, I you know, everyone watches documentaries, whether it be slender man or whatever and we all have our reactions after i watched it i told my wife come in here and watch this with me again <laughs> oh my gosh what a compliment yeah uh wow. it well, was i that's that's an incredible thing to hear and you know as a, as a filmmaker that's what we like you do all the work you carry the tripod all over the you know you're not mm -hmm. sure if you're gonna get the access because you get to talk to someone that's like hey i watched your movie twice like that is the mo that's one of the coolest things uh, you can ever say. Yeah, and I I'm respectful as you as the filmmaker because I know I got to pre-screen this. I I want to show it to all my friends, but I'm like, no, they need to Monday, go. Monday, <laughs> it's so close. I mean, it's Monday, it's so close, it's soon. Uh, I know, but I I wanted to show all of them, and I'm like, nope, they need to go out and and get their subscription. <laughs> they need to pay for this because everyone in the film industry that made this this movie needs needs the recognition. It's I can't great manners. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, I used to be that guy that would torrent everything and doing my own podcast and seeing people 
take my episodes that mm -hmm. I charge for and throwing them out there on torrent sites. You know what? Now I know how it feels and I'm not going to do that any longer. There uh, you go. Lesson yeah. learned. Yeah, exactly. As this is building up for you, how much attention have you got and anticipation of this release? Um, I mean, when I came to HBO, like this is my second movie for them. And, you know, they were just like, what is this case? I mean, it, it was an untested case in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I think people like you and I know this because we're in this very specific sort of community that's watching stories like this. But like people, you know, they did not know what this was. And they were just like, oh, my God, I don't know. But they're like, OK, figure out if you like it. We trust your instincts. So like try to do it. Um, and then I got the access to her. And then Michelle Dean wrote this fantastic, rip-roaring BuzzFeed piece. And I was like, okay, you know, it'll go on BuzzFeed. It'll get a couple hundred thousand views. It'll be fine. I saw the interview. That post got four million hits. <laughs> like, and I just, I just sat there and I was like, like nervously sweating, but also very excited for her. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it's just, it was difficult. And HBO was just like, oh, like this is a big deal. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be, it, it has the potential to be, um, you know, to be a big story. And so me as the filmmaker, I just was on Good Morning America this morning, like getting a tape segment. That is very atypical. I, I don't know if they're always having documentary filmmakers on Good Morning America. So yes, the the attention uh, for the film has been larger than you know what I've expected. But um, you know, I just hope people watch. When it comes out, it's going to blow up, Vince, and I'm flattered that you're coming on to my little podcast too. <laughs> come to on, me. I don't. I listen to so many podcasts. Like podcasts are how. It's just it's just for people that are going to take the time to go on a network and find the movie. I'm I'm just I'm so glad they exist, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and on a podcast, it's not a 5-minute blip on a TV show or interview, it, you know. You right, exactly. Hear, you know. Not saying any anything against blips on TV shows. I love them. I love it all. <laughs> The first thing, like when, when you mentioned the producers at HBO going, um, what is this? I, I can only imagine that conversation because it is such a whacked out story. Uh, but this is exactly what true crime fans look for. So I'm glad they trusted you on this because if they if they shot it down, th this would be the probably, I would say, one of the biggest missed opportunities in a lifetime. And the thing is, that wasn't what happened, you know, and what is great about it, like, you know, Sarah didn't, Sarah Bernstein, who's the supervising producer on this project, she wasn't sure about it because it was untested. Mm -hmm. It's not a Slenderman case. It's not something that, you know, people are immediately going to see. But I think that what HBO is, you know, what I'm so grateful for is like, they really, um, they just trust filmmakers' instincts. And I'm, you know, I'm on the younger side of my career. This is my second movie for them. And you know, it's difficult to be in a position of power under 30 and people for people to tell you to follow your insta instincts, excuse me. Uh, you know, it's I just I have immense gratitude. I, I applaud you. I think you're awesome to be a woman under 30 and to have two movies under your belt and to be. I don't sleep. <laughs> don't sleep. I'm scared all night because I do this horrible work. That's amazing. Well, and that, that was, uh, I guess, another question that at least I get a lot is how does covering stories like these impact your uh, psyche and is it exciting for you is it scary for you all the above I mean my therapist who is lovely just kind of asks me routinely why 
why? <laughs> it's a really bizarre sort of, it, I go to a lot of prisons. I get a lot of mail from prisons. I, I live with my boyfriend. We had a talk about, you know, I'm going to start getting prison mail at my office instead of at, our, you know, at our house. But it's just, it's so interesting. So if it's, if you find it interesting, you're not really doing work. Um, that being said, getting access in prisons is not for the faint of heart. It's incredibly difficult and there are no, there's no guarantee. You can work on something for a year straight and a, a guy in the jail that heads the jail could just say, nope, I don't want it to happen. So there is a thousand ways from Sunday that this film would not have happened. And the fact that it did is is shocking to me. And that's something that I I've figured out and found out over time is people don't understand that even loved ones trying to visit their their relatives in prison is hard. I mean, so I can only imagine for somebody who's not a friend or family member uh, getting access to a prison I can't even imagine how hard or difficult that is compared to just me wanting to see, say, my cousin or my brother who's in prison. They have to put me on a list. That list has to be approved. I have to go there, be screened, go through a check. There's only certain days that you can go. So do you want to talk about your other movie at all? or Which one? The first one? Yes. Or the third one? Well, any I'm of them. I'm doing a trilogy. No, I just shouted. I'm doing a trilogy. So the next one is a true crime murder mystery that I'm going to be shooting probably, you know, I'm shooting it in soon in a different state. I can't say more than that. I hope it will be as interesting. It will be. And the first film, which was, you know, one of the most difficult, challenging things that I've ever thought about. It's called Thought Crimes. It's about a New York City police officer that was con- uh, convicted of conspiracy to kidnap, rape, torture, and eat women. This is conspiracy. He didn't actually do it. He had a, a complete intense fascination with talking with other men online about killing women he knew. And uh, yeah, I started visiting him in prison because that's that's what you do. <laughs> I had talked to HBO about making it and they were like, you know, see if you can get the access. And I worked on that for a really long time. And that was, the film is about, can you be convicted for the worst thoughts that you have in your head? Mm-hmm. Thoughts that, you know, not, I don't think you or I particularly have those thoughts, but we have thought some pretty dark things. And I don't think it's okay for the government to be able to use that against us. Absolutely. It's it, what was that movie? Minority Report. You can think whatever you want, you can say whatever you want for the most part, and we shouldn't be regulated on on those thoughts or or those things. So now is this guy as much of a threat to society as the legal system wants to portray him? Uh, you know, they they have their arguments, so. <laughs> what are your thoughts on jury nullification? <laughs> I mean, I just I just learned about it on um, what show was I watching? How to Get Away with Murder. Um, that is a really good show. Yeah. Um, and so jury nullification is basically, if I'm remembering correctly, where if you think it's not like ethical to find them guilty. Can you remind me what it is? Yeah. It, the jury can find somebody not guilty and they can go completely against uh, jury instructions, whatever. So if somebody's on, say, on trial for marijuana and they're going to go to jail for 10 years for a marijuana charge and you just say, well, I don't agree with that law, you can just vote not guilty. And right. okay. there's a lot of... Uh, yeah, I don't think people know about that. Yeah, it's very un 
uh, unspoken. And if you go to, if you're being selected for to be on a jury and you say, oh, I believe in jury nullification, they will strike you from that jury immediately. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the, those are the magic words. Yeah. But it doesn't work with grand jury, right? Not really, no. You but... can't get out of grand jury. I like move. <laughs> yeah. And it's a double-edged sword because back in uh, 1950s and whatnot, if some people in the South were to say, lynch a black man, well, their fellow community could just say, well, I don't see anything wrong with this and let them walk. But right. in but in today's world, I, I would I think it would be used more for good as in this is an unjust law. So therefore, we can let the person walk. I guess what was some of the most surprising things um, that you found while making this documentary, whether it be about the case or just doing the documentary itself? Personally, uh, you know, what I found was really shocking, you know, and a couple of things didn't make it into the actual cut. So I think those are interesting things to bring up. Basically that uh, Gypsy and Dee Dee slept in the same bed every single night uh, of their lives together. Uh, Gypsy had her own bed it's at that pink little house that we see in the opening credits, um, but they slept in bed every night together. I find that shocking and weird. I don't know of any, you know, 18 year old that is still in bed with their parent. Found the the amount of sexual back and forth between Nick and Gypsy to be startling. I remember what it's like to be a teenager in lust and in love, but like that was just some next level stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I can't I can't even begin to to say all the things that I thought was shocking. Like I worked with this woman, Allison Byrne, who's my co-producer and like my, my girl Friday. And, you know, we would just sit in this room in our office together, just being like just going back and forth, like being like, what about this? What about this? What about this? You know, it just there's no end. I can only imagine what you thought to include in the documentary and what fell on the chopping room floor here because there is so much craziness and so many minor details such as that. Uh, something I did appreciate was the level of control that Dee Dee had and, I, and you pointed out where she will squeeze Gypsy's hand during interviews. That was the most telling thing to me. I know everyone's going to have their most telling thing, but that to me was wow. It's even in the public eye, but it's so obfuscated. Totally. How long did it take you to make this? And when did you find out about the story and decide to make it? So it, I found out about it August 2015. As we sit here, it's now May 2017. So it took, you know, it took a year and a half more towards two years. Um, these things take time. I was a year into the story before I got access to Gypsy in prison, she was facing a capital murder charge. I had to be patient. And I, you know, I spoke a lot with Mike Stanfield and her family. She just was, she could be facing a trial. So we, I understood that it was not the right time to push. And, you know, there were other networks that were interested in this, um, you know, but I think that I talked with the family. I said, this is going to be um, this can be a rigorous examination of what happened. This, I'm not going to just, you know, drop a bunch of uh, crime scene or well, splash it all over the movie and like point fingers at you guys. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a documentary filmmaker. And yes, it's for television. Yes, it's for HBO. But, you know, I will do right by you and by the truth. A year and a half seems like so long to me. But it also, it isn't. It is just, it, it is not. And it was, you know, it took that much time because that's how much it, it, it took. 
I, I mean, there's other filmmakers that take years to create a film. So right. I, and I worked for Vice. And so I made things in like one month, two months, yeah. three months. So for a long time, it was like, you know, a year on something was just like, oh, my God, it's just taking a little sort of getting used to. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you were patient with it. And mm-hmm. a, a year sounds very quick to me. <laughs> um, when you first heard about the case, did you know you were going to make this into a documentary or, or did it take some time for you to decide? I mean, it was one of six stories that I was considering for my next project. I think that when you're dealing with prison access, it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And so you just can't bank everything on that this is going to happen. So there was uh, basically me chasing after sort of other things. And it just it, it, it's just like I've been totally enveloping myself in this world. But yes, this is I was always convinced that this could be a big story. But you, you had to diversify your, your stories and what you're going to go after because you have all these game stoppers that can just yeah. shut. I mean, the sheriff wouldn't even respond to my request to interview her in prison. It was only through um, really considerate people that I won't name names that it actually happened. Gypsy is not does not have any sort of autonomy over her, her body or her freedom still. Uh, people control her, continue to. That, I guess that's the whole horrible storyline here is her mother controlled her, her boyfriend controlled her, and now, you know, her life's being controlled by the system. It's heartbreaking to me to think that somebody can be victimized over and over and over again. I like to bring up a lot of the times is we we like to victimize a victim. Mitigating factors and trials and, and people's cases should always hold a lot of weight. But it's that balance of do we let them get away with a crime because they were abused as a child? And that's it's always. And I think you're hitting on a really important point. Like, you know, a gypsy is a perpetrator of a crime, but she's also a victim. So how do we how do we handle this material? You know, we're, we're doing press for this. And I, I find myself smiling and sort of like, you know, laughing with you. And, you know, I, I just I, I always have to remind myself that this is a sad and disturbing and ultimately really tragic crime story. So it's, you know, it's good that there's laughs. There needs to have some levity. Um, but, you know, I, I don't forget that this is about a human. I, I think that's what gets lost sometimes with the true crime communities and genres. Hey. Is, you know, people will joke. And I think a lot of the time it's not mean spirited. It's just this is a subject that we're into. But it can come off really poorly, really easily. And yeah, like I mean, I listen my favorite murderer, and the first time I listened to that, they were laughing and just like, "Whoa, like this is crazy." But if you're dealing with this sort of material day in and day out, that's so normal for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's just like you know, and then like other you know other episodes, they're very very respectful, and like it's a thing that you just kind of have to consistently sort of think about. Aaron and I try to be very respectful of that. Uh, I, I have a nervous laugh. I a lot of people do, and I try to keep a keep it under wraps when I'm talking about something terrible on my podcast. So definitely. Um, what was there anything after you completed the documentary that you thought I wish this would have gone in there, or I wish I Justin, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? I ask know my the the secrets. Um, no, I mean, I, I can't, I can't go into it cause I'll cry too much. Aww. No, there's tons of things that I wish were in it. It's a, it is a, it is a, what's it called? Comprehensive, but it's 82 minutes. It's quick. 
Yeah. Um, we want you to have this sort of whiplash feeling when you're done with it. But no, I could I could have gone on for quite some time, and that's why there are editors. <laughs> Will there be a uh, director's cut ever? <laughs> um, so what I would be really fascinated to do is, so Gypsy gets out in about seven, seven and a half years, and I've asked her if she would feel comfortable with us filming when she gets out. And, you know, life will be different for both of us. But I think her trying to reintegrate into society would be very compelling. And I, I would love to I would love a follow up like that, because in most murder, true crime stories, you just get the, the murder and you get the trial and there's zero follow up. And I hate that. That's the one thing I would change about the true crime genre is I, I want to see the aftermath, the everyone lives unhappily ever after <laughs> kind of part. When does this come out and how do people watch it? So this film comes out on Monday, May 15th at 10 p.m. It is on HBO and it is a, a wild, weird story. <laughs> Any any warning to people about anything before Fairly they watch? Fairly graphic. Yes. I I subscribe to uh, HBO Now, and I highly recommend people go out and sign up, <laughs> even if it's just to watch your documentary, and then they can yeah, cancel. sign up for a month trial. See if you like it. Yeah. There is fantastic, fantastic films on HBO Docs, like... You know, we mentioned Slender Man. There's, you know, there's Bright Lights, the Carrie Fisher, um, Debbie Reynolds film. You know, there's Twelfth in, in Delaware. I mean, it just, uh, I, you know, there's a lot of people making amazing, amazing content. Uh, but HBO continues to to be greatly culturally impressive yeah. and just run the gambit. Mm -hmm. So. That's my plug for them, but they're lovely. But um, yeah, I hope people watch this one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I won't keep you too long. Uh, but uh, this is this has been an awesome conversation, and uh, we'll people Wonderful. can be excited about watching your your documentary. All right. Thank you so much, Justin. Okay. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Generation Y podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.